If you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Kings chapter 11. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 8. Then we'll go just take a time to pray. Can we calibrate our minds as we study the Word of God this evening? Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonians, and Hittite women. From nations concerning which the, which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away, turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wife turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Where Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then, then Solomon built a high place for Kishma, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did all his he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrifice to their idols. Heavenly Father, as we look at um, this particular topic on why we need to not pursue a relationship with non-Christians, that we look to this text and other texts throughout your living word that we choose, as we strive to live for your holy name. Lord, give us the right principles and application in our life, and Lord, may our hearts be softened to your word, and we pray that we can honor you with our lives. Give us a conviction that transcends our emotions, then we, we may be informed by your word so we can live for your glory. In your son's precious name, amen. In my life, if there's one particular counseling situation that is often very heartbreaking for me, it is with this particular issue. When I was in high school going to college, the, the guys that I, I ended up going to school with and going to small groups and discipleship groups and prayer meetings with all eventually all ended up in these relationships that turned their hearts away from the Lord. It was seemingly innocent at first. They think, okay, well, this person may not be a believer, but it's totally okay because the Lord will protect me. And as I pleaded with these friends, one after another, each of them eventually said, enough, I'm going to follow I'm going to deny and leave this whole Christianity thing because I love her or I love him. It's often the case that those who seek to date or engage in some sort of romantic relationship with non-Christian will lead them to the point where they fall away from the faith or make some sort of moral compromise. Again, this is something that I've seen over and over again, particularly with young people, your age group. Because it's just very easy for us to be tempted to think there is is there something better out there than the people in the church or no one is asking me out 
but this non-believer seems to be interested and maybe I should spend some time with them. Christians think that it is okay to engage in a romantic relationship with non-Christians will eventually, usually there's two paths. It's either they realize that they're doing something wrong and they, they turn and repent or they realize they're doing something wrong and they continue in it. And oftentimes that leads to their own destruction spiritually. I think in my whole life, I only knew of one person that ended a relationship with a non-Christian. And the only reason why that person did so was because the lady said to him, you know, doesn't the Bible say something about you can't date non-Christians? This person was an atheist and she just told him like, I don't love Jesus. In fact, I hate this guy and you're dating me and you claim to love Jesus. How are we gonna work this out? And that was just this, like, okay, yeah, you're right. We, we got to end this relationship. But again, it wasn't the Christian guy that took the initiative. It was actually the atheist girl that made this, that was astute enough to make this observation that there's something wrong here. And I fear, in the context of our church, that we will make the same type of mistake because we think that the Lord will somehow uniquely protect us, that God will make us special. And in this context of this dating series that we're going through, and like the other things I've said, I've said things in, behind this pulpit that I would say is my opinion. Like this is, you know, I, I did the thing where I visually step to the side. And yeah, there's some practical things that might be like, okay, this is what my, my suggestion or my advice. But with this particular topic, I'm going to stand behind the word of God because this is a black and white issue. This is not a gray area issue. There are no middle ground for this. Now, I, I understand why some people try to pursue non-Christians. Sometimes it is that loneliness that is real. They feel pain. Like they don't, know, they, they don't know how long they can keep up with being single. Others are just because they just make compromises. They make, oh, it's okay. It's okay if I just inch forward and you know, maybe my godliness will somehow uh, pour over to them and then they'll eventually come to saving faith. Some people just date non-Christian because it's just for sake of pleasure. Christian worldview and the Christian biblical ethic and the Christian uh, marriage are certain things that they are that Christians are called to do and, and we're called for a life of purity and, to, and especially when we're single and even when we're married but we're called to be honorable to the Lord in the way that we handle our bodies but what is strange when people think that they're doing dating evangelism is that there are people that have done this and have succeeded Right, there are people that we know, I know personally, that like they dated, they were a Christian or they were a non-Christian, they dated a Christian or non-Christian, and the non-Christian ended up being saved. And what is sad is that sometimes people look at those examples and say, see, see, look, those, those people, it worked out for them, why can't it work out for me? But the danger of just looking at these examples is that you presume on the Lord. And presuming on the Lord is a sin. It's not genuine faith, you're just trying to manipulate God to give you what you want. Or you presume that, well, if, I'm, if I love Jesus, I pray enough, then God will just give me this relationship. But like in the end of the book of James, we're like, you fool, you have no idea what tomorrow brings. You presume that just because you are in this relationship that you can actually win this other person to Christ. Often when I see those that think that there's some sort of definitive outcome, I, uh, when I ask them, like, you know, how do you know that this is God's will for your life. And then usually say, well, aren't you presuming on the Lord? You're presuming that God can't work in my life to save this other person. You're doing the same thing that I'm doing, presuming on God. 
You know, usually I respond by saying it's not so much about outcomes, but rather obedience to the Lord. God is never honored when people are disobedient to him. In 1943, there was an American airman named Alan McGee, and he fell off a B-17 bomber over France. He fell 22,000 feet. You guys know how much that is in miles? That's four miles. He was four miles up in the air. He was somehow knocked off the aircraft. He fell four miles and land, landed in a train station. He survived. Now, imagine if someone, and just so you know, that guy didn't survive, and that wasn't even the highest point. If you Google who, the highest person that fell, that survived, there's actually more people that survived in higher um, you know, altitude. But imagine someone said that, well, if this guy survived falling four miles, I can jump out of a plane without uh, a parachute, and I can survive as well. Because if, if these little exceptions work in certain people's lives, then it should be for me too. Yeah, when it comes to dating, just because the outcome of some marriages goes to leading the other person to salvation, that doesn't mean that happens to all people. Much like just a handful of people can survive falling for four miles off a plane, that doesn't mean that everyone will. People who want to do dating evangelism are always trying to look for possible outcomes and results that are as opposed to just obeying and being faithful to the Lord. Instead of entrusting your life to him, you want to try to do things that are antithetical to the word of God. Ultimately, you presume too much of the Lord and assuming too much of yourself. You're presuming that God will give you what you want, and you're assuming that my life is so great that I could win this person to Christ. You assume that just based on how good you look or how, or how charming you are, that that's what's going to take for this person to come to saving faith. And again, it does happen for some, but there's no guarantee that, you'll, that the Lord will do that in your life. But what he is commanding us to do, and he, what's revealed in his word is that we obey him, that we trust him, that we're faithful to him. Also, when people do dating evangelism, I, I kind of like, well, why can't you just do, like, like they, they say that, like, I'm gonna date this person, evangelize them, or I'm in this relationship hoping to, to win them to Christ, it, it seems very, like, altruistic, right? It sounds sound very selfless and self-sacrificing. I'm using my, my cuteness for the glory of God, or I'm using my beauty to win people to Christ. It sounds so spiritual and godly. But then I usually ask, like, why can't you just evangelize to this person? Like, why do you have to date this person? Why can't you just win them to Christ first? Why don't we just try to bring other people to share the gospel with them, see what happens? Because eventually they'll find you obnoxious and want to have nothing to do with you. What's so blinding about this is that people think that they are doing a service to the Lord when they date non-Christians. But in reality, they're not, it's not even about Jesus. It's not about salvation. It's really about their own desires. And oftentimes when I share and kind of counsel people out of this, they'll say, where is that exact verse where they say that you cannot date non-Christians? And we'll get to that tonight. And I think the problem with this question is that since the Bible doesn't talk about dating the way that the Bible speaks of, there's no concept of our modern-day thinking of dating, that therefore, since the Bible's silent about it, then you should be silent as well. You should not tell me what to do what the Bible doesn't actually say with those explicit words, thou shalt not date non-Christians. But the reality is that although those words don't show up, the, the principle is still there. There are verses that speak of it, maybe not in that sense, but it does speak in terms of marriage, and we understand that dating is a means to marriage. And if that's the case, then why do we begin a relationship with someone that is going to lead, is supposed to lead to marriage? And Christians are called not to marry unbelievers. 
not that God doesn't want his people to not get married if they want to, but it has to be done in a certain way. People that are followers of God will submit to his word. Marriage or dating outside the faith means a person that is, in a, that, that is a Christian that's attempting to marry or engage in some sort of romantic relationship with, with someone that does not hold the same faith as you. So this includes categories of like Jehovah Witnesses or Mormon or Muslims or, or even people that claim to be non-religious like the agnostics or the atheists. Whatever category may be, I see them as all in the same category. They're basically non-believers. Now this is not a new concept. We read through 1 Kings, but you understand that this is, not, this, this is just an example of what happens when someone chooses to turn away from the Lord. In Exodus chapter 34, God instructs the people of Israel after he brings them out of Egypt he gives them a, a command that when you go into the promised land, before you even get there, or, or when you get there, you need to understand that you cannot intermarry with people outside the faith. Exodus chapter 34, verse 11. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Hevazites, the Jebusites. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going or will become a snare in your midst. Rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashrams. For you shall not worship any of the other gods, for the, for the Lord, who, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, uh, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughter might play the harlot with the gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall, uh, you shall make for yourself no molten god. And God is not, he's not giving this instruction because he's racist. God is not saying, oh, you don't marry these people because of their ethnicity. The problem here is that he didn't want them to have their hearts turned away from Yahweh. In fact, in the context of Exodus, and then when, the, when the exodus was going on, it wasn't actually just Israelites that left. It, it said that there was a multitude of people, that it was a whole bunch of people that, that were mixed between both those that are Israelites and those that are uh, Egyptians as well. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramis to Sukkoth, about 600,000 600, men on foot out, aside from the Aside from children, a mixed multitude also went up with them, along with the flocks and the herds, a very large number of livestock. So saying that there's, it's not just that God is saying, don't, you know, date, don't date these people because of their ethnicity. God's saying, don't, uh, God's saying don't marry people because of their faith. This is a spiritual issue. Deuteronomy chapter 7 Verse 1 to 6, when Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land where you are entering to possess and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gigashites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Pezzarites and the Hevites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord, your God, delivered them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their, to their sons, you shall, you, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me and to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. 
Again, it's not because the Lord is against the race. The Lord wants purity and pure devotion to him and him alone. Another reference here, Joshua chapter 23, verse 11 to 13. It reads, so take diligence so take diligent heed to yourself to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know, know that with certainty that the Lord, will, the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorn in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which Lord your God has given you. And these were pagan people that lived in the land, and God told them, do not intermarry with them. And again, there was an instance even in the beginning of Joshua where the people that understood in Jericho, like, okay, this is Yahweh, they became believers. So it was, again, it's not an ethnicity issue, it is a spiritual issue. And it'd be at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people uh, gave themselves to foreign wives, and Ezra and Nehemiah, they were upset because the reason why the entire nation fell was because they gave themselves up to other nations. It was because they, they played the harlot and worshipped other gods. But because of these intermarried relationships that they had. And that they wept and they told them, why are you committing the same sins that got you into the exile to begin with? That's some of the prohibition that we see in the Old Testament. In the Psalms, it says it makes these references as well. But for the sake of time, I want to focus here on 1 Kings chapter 11. Again, this is just to show you that this is not some sort of isolated event, that Solomon wasn't just, he wasn't the only one that failed in this way, or that he somehow was oblivious to the fact that God has commanded him not to marry foreign wives. Again, this story should be familiar to all of us, because we know who King Solomon is. He was the wisest king. He had God visit him twice, and God asked him, what does he want? He wants, and he said he wants the ability to discern right and wrong so he can govern the people. He asked for wisdom. This should be a very stark warning to us that just because you have wisdom doesn't mean that you make the wisest choices in life. Just because you know wisdom or you've obtained wisdom doesn't mean that you actually live that in your own life. I know that the wisest thing for me if I was to diet is to stay away from the donuts. I know that's objectively the right thing to do, but sometimes I act foolishly because donuts are very sweet. Now, that's not good for my health, but and I know objectively that the donuts are not good for me, but I'm going to eat it anyways. No, these are those temporal, superficial things. But understand that in a moral sense, that's, that's, that there are grave consequences. You can make, you can have wisdom, but still make poor choices. Dating a non-Christian is a horrible, de horrible decision that is bad objectively. If you choose to go about it still, it will only end in a train wreck. The issue here, again, is not about the Lord not wanting you to be happy or joyful. Because Solomon here ignored the warnings from his forefather that he received from the Lord. Solomon married all of these women because some for political reasons. He married the princess and, um, you know, because he can make connections with other nations and others was just strictly for pleasure. You have to understand Solomon did not even need these political connections. Right? He, he was the wisest king. There were people from all over the world that came to him and was amazed by him and then they start worshiping the true god at some point he didn't care about those things he didn't trust that the lord was going to use him to to build his kingdom rather he, he started doing things that were antithetical to god's word and some of these women were just strictly for pleasure notice that in chapter 11 verse 1 
and two, there was this list of all of these different women. Uh, it says here from verse two, from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their God. And that was God's warning. He told them that, look, your heart, your heart will turn away. Don't associate yourself. And then this isn't saying like, oh, we're friends, but rather it's like, don't, don't marry them. Don't be in some sort of romantic relationship with them. And it said here that Solomon held fast to these in love. And the NASB uses the word held fast, but the word in the Hebrew is the word clinging. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You know, it's like God said, leave your father and mother and cling to your wife. That's the same word. But obviously he rejected that command because he clung not just to one wife, but to a thousand of different foreign women. This is a spiritual issue. It ruined him. It ruined uh, the nation of Israel as a whole. If you keep going through First King, this sin that he commits eventually fractures Israel into two nations. There was a civil war because of this. Sin is never satisfied. He think, Solomon thought, oh, I was in love with all of these different women, which at a certain point, you have to think, like, did he really love them? Because if you love everyone, then you don't really love you know, is there like a superficial kind of love? You know, if I say I love all things, and like you don't really love all things, but all things are, are beauty, beautiful, then not, not everything is beautiful. You know, it kind of diminishes it. Some of the same thing here. All these women that he's acquired, that he's made relationships with, he loved them, but it's probably in a very superficial way. It's never satisfying. Right? I mean, at what point do you think he's like, okay, this is enough wise for me? After like 457, he's like, you know, I think that's enough. No, it's never that way. Sin is never satisfied because it always wants more. Verse 3, it says, He has 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wife turned his heart away. See, this is cause and effect. God said, if you marry non-Christians, you, if you go with these people that are foreigners, that will turn your heart from the faith, and that's exactly what happened. They, he, he, his heart clung to them physically and emotionally, and then his heart was turned away. The result of all of this is that he has a change of heart. Here's a question that we need to think about. The person you date and you marry will have the greatest influence in your life. That's just true. So you need to ask yourself, does this person or this person that I want to pursue, does, it, is, does he or she make me more Christ-like? There's a principle we understand, like, how do you know if this person is right for you? Well, does that person draw you to the Lord? And a non-Christian cannot draw you close to Christ. You're dating a non-Christian, they're going to draw you away from the Lord. And it's obvious because they've already, you've already made compromises to be in a relationship with them. So how can you be obedient to him? Does this person influence you for godliness? And obviously for Solomon, that was not the case. Verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wife turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was unholy devoted to the Lord as the heart of David, his father, had been. And from five to seven or to eight, he, there was all these different idols that they made. And he started doing all of these different pagan rituals. He compromised. Understand the compromise affects everyone. His sin was not isolated to himself and only himself. It affected the entire nation. And that's what I think people don't understand when they're dating non-Christians. Sometimes they make this excuse. Well, I'm only dating this person. How does it affect you? It's my life, and it doesn't affect you. It's my life. It's my happiness. Why does this concern you? Because sin always affects other people. It affects the family. If you're in a believing home, it affects them because they 
don't want you to see, they don't want to see you date a non-Christian. It affects your testimony with, the, with, with those around you that, that knows that you profess faith. It affects the people in the church because they care for you and they see you making all of these foolish decisions. It affects everyone in your life. But most importantly, it affects the God that you claim to worship. Sin is never isolated. At this point, it will seem that Solomon isn't even a believer, right? I mean, Solomon, I think people assume because of the book of Ecclesiastes that he repented. And I, I do hold to that view, but there are also people that just, and again, this is the presuming of glory. So like, oh, see, Solomon eventually repented. But there is an assurance that just because Solomon repented, that you will repent as well. I think some people think that, well, I can just wait and, and live life long enough, and then after I have all my fun, then I'll turn back to the Lord. And it may have worked for Solomon, but it, it may, there's no assurance for you. In verse 3, in verse 4, in verse, and even verse 9, we didn't read it. It said that his heart turn, was turned away from the Lord. And this word, like, turning your heart, has this flavor of, like, being a slow, gradual turn. It's a slowly drifting. Perhaps he might not have noticed it the first, you know, 800 wives that his heart was already slowly turning away from God. Sin always makes you shift your loyalty. It always makes you shift your loyalty, not necessarily primarily because of the church or family or your friends, but it shifts your heart away from God. You may be seemingly getting away with it for several seasons of your life, but eventually your heart will be turned away because of your own lust. And remember, Solomon, he wrote Proverbs. He wrote Proverbs chapter 5 to 7, and that was like explaining to his son why he needs to stay away from the foreign women, the adulterer, you be pure, you be wise, and all of that. And obviously, he failed here. This is what happens when you compromise. You, fall, you fail morally, and you fall far from where you were at one point. It pretty much undone, undo all the spiritual things that you've done in the past. Every type of conquering of sin, every victory you have over over, over temptation, all of those things will be completely undone the moment you give yourself into some sort of romantic relationship with non-Christians. However, his compromise did not begin the moment he first saw a princess. That was not where it began. Before he married all these women, he already made a whole bunch of compromises. Let's jump back. First Kings chapter 4, verse 26. There's this little reference here that said that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And then later on, he even makes a house for himself that took twice as long than he did to make the temple. This is a reference all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 is the instruction that Moses has to the Israel if they were to appoint a, a human king over themselves. This is, that means that it's not wrong for them to have a king. It's just that they have a king that's after God's own heart. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord has given, which Yahweh your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as a king over yourselves. You may know you you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. What's the what's the significance of horses? That's like saying in our day, tanks and like helicopter, like like fighter choppers and 
um, you know, missiles and weapons. That's like what the, that's what a horse was. It's to symbolize this military uh, greatness. And you have to understand back then, Yahweh said that He will do the fighting for them. That they, I mean, these were a bunch of farmers, and God was going to use them to 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 get rid of all, all these other pagan nations. So He warns them: Do not make all of these horses for yourselves. Verse seventeen: He He shall not multiply wives for Himself, or else His heart will turn away nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And this is exactly what Solomon did. He compromised in one area, and then he compromised in another area, and then he compromised in another area. He multiplied wealth for himself. He had multiple wives. He, he had a military army. And he tells them that you need to, uh, you're the king that you, have, that you want, he has to follow these instructions. Notice that it says in verse 18, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levite priest, Levitical priest. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of his law and these statutes and that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. And it is interesting to note that Deuteronomy tells the king what they're supposed to do. One of the things that safeguards against all of those sins that he mentioned, the things that he cannot do, is to study the word of God. It's to know God. It's to, it's to, it's to see who God is, read the testament. He's not using just, not just reading. He has to actually copy the entire Torah. I wanted to do this at one point in my life. I wanted to take my fountain pen and have like a whole bunch of books and just copy the entire Bible word for word. I gave up after just looking at Genesis. Like there's too many words here. It's just, there's, it's just a, it's an, it seems like an impossible task. Because I wanted to see, can, can anyone actually do this? And it's a very hard thing to do. It could be a cool hobby to do. Maybe you could spend your whole life doing it. But the reason why that is is so that, you know, the king is supposed to know God's word. He's supposed to govern the people according to God's word. He's supposed to do it in front of the priest so the priest can correct him. And not only that, when he's done with it, he's supposed to read it, constantly devote his life to reading and meditating and remembering God's commandments. And it, there's actually no point in 1 Kings that actually says that Solomon did this. There's no point, there's no record that said that Solomon copied God's word and, wrote and read it over and over again. And this is an application for us and a principle for us to think about that sin rarely appears suddenly. There's all these compromises that comes along the way, and oftentimes those compromises come when we're not reading God's word for ourselves. Solomon was Solomon spent his life clinging. Well, he wasn't clinging to uh, to the word of God. He wasn't clinging to the Lord, which ended up making him cling to all of these other women. Again, this is a warning that if there's an absence of God's word in your life, eventually, spiritually, you will fall. You need to read God's word daily and know God's word, and to walk closely with Him. That one little compromise in your devotion is going, in your own private life is going to make you fail in your public life. When it came to Solomon, he didn't devote his life to knowing God through his word, which made him vulnerable to all types of sin. If it happens to the wisest man, to Solomon, to this king, then they can also happen to you as well. Dating a non-Christian is not some sort of Christian ritual thing. And like I said with the last few messages, that the, the problem with singleness and marriage is actually not singleness and marriage. Rather, it's a spiritual issue. And Solomon failed because his spiritual life didn't care and devote his life to the word of God. 
So by the way of application for us, what are some lessons that we can learn about the dangers of dating and, and marrying non-Christians? First is this, that when you choose to date non-Christians, you compromise your testimony. That's the first point, you compromise your testimony. And this is what Solomon did, right? He diluted Yahweh's holiness to the world. The moment he accepted all of these other princesses and married all of these other women, he's essentially telling the world that, hey, it's not the wisdom that God has given me. It is actually my own wisdom. It's my political uh, savviness that got me into all of these peace with the world and all of these other foreign nations. He made Israel common, just like the rest of the world, which in a sense makes God common, just like the rest of the world. And, uh, and for us, we have to understand that it will ruin your testimony. When you date non-Christians, it will, it will ruin your testimony. You can't expect other people to take God's word seriously if you don't take God's word seriously. And one thing that's often said when people date non-Christians is that they're aren't any people in the faith or in the church that they're interested in or willing to ask them out, so therefore they might as well try risking it. And I can't help wonder, if you choose to date a non-Christian, what makes you so attractive to the non-Christian? Like, I get it, Christian people tend to be more kind and uh, gentle, and there's this, um, you know, attractive nature to some of the characteristics of, of Christ-likeness. But those things are relatively superficial in comparison to Christ. The Christian's greatest bond and interest is Jesus Christ. Our greatest affection must be the Lord. So you may have all of these other things in common. You might be attractive in a superficial sense. But the thing that should most define you is Jesus Christ. At some point, if you, if you claim to be following the Lord, yet you're making, you're making all these compromises, people won't take your faith seriously. How do you expect have the same worldview just, just in life. You know, eventually if you date this person, you marry this person, and you still hold to certain convictions, how, how do you expect to parent? What are you going to do on Sundays if you decide to go to church and your spouse doesn't want to go to church? These are, if your life is centered around Christ, these things should matter. You know, what do you do if, if, if you want someone to lead you, but they're not a believer, they can't lead you? Or you want someone to submit to you and they don't care about your, they don't have the same worldview as you. You can only go so far before you end up denying the Bible altogether. In those moments, you want to continue, if you're struggling with singleness, it's these moments you want to continue to grow in godliness and pray that the Lord will provide someone for you and that's attracted to your godliness. If you grow in godliness, that should be a very, that should be a turnoff to the world because your desires are different. Your life, your aspirations, everything should be different. You may have common interests, you may have jobs and everything, yeah, I get that. But the thing that you love most is not going to be the thing that the non-Christian loves most. Also, it's very unloving. It's very unloving to date a non-Christian because you're giving this non-Christian some sort of assurance that, like, hey, it's okay to, like, get, not submit to the Lord. You know, I claim to be a follower of Jesus, and, you know, you don't have to, and, like, do you, are you, but are you really following Jesus? You're basically giving them assurance that, you know, you don't, you're not bearing of your cross and following Christ. Why do I need to do that? The most loving, if the most loving thing that you can do is to share the gospel with someone, then the most unloving thing you do is to compromise it by, by dating them. Because you're saying, you know, my relationship with you is more important than my obedience to the Lord. Why would they need to devote themselves and give their lives to Christ if, if you aren't doing the same thing? How can you tell the other person to, to love Christ, pick up the cross, and follow him if you haven't 
denied yourself, pick up the cross, and follow the Lord. So that compromises your testimony. If you choose to date non-Christian, you compromise your testimony. Second, it compromises your theology. In order to move forward in dating a non-Christian, there must be some denial or bending of Scripture in order to get what you want. And this is exactly what Solomon did. He was making all of these sacrifices to all these pagan idols, all of these other women, because he had to make in his mind, okay, uh, the, should I do this? Oh, yeah, I'll do it just because I love these women. And, you know, I love the Lord, too. You have to make, he had to make this, some sort of mental gap, mental gymnastics to, to compromise in order to do what he was able to do. Because God already told him, like, you're not allowed to have any other gods before me. And it said that one of the gods was right next to the temple. It was showing us, like, oh, there's equality between the two. They're make, Solomon was making compromises theologically. Again, this is a clear issue in the Bible. So when, if you choose to ignore the scriptures, then essentially you're making a compromise doctrinally or theologically. You can't expect to portray what Christ wants for you if you choose to deny his word, right? Just think about it. The Bible talks about marriage in terms of a picture between Christ and the church, right? You have to deny that if you want to marry a non-Christian because how can that be? How can your relationship reflect Christ and the church when the person is not Christ or the church, if they're not a believer? You, know, you can't have that, that image that Christ expects of you in your marriage. If you're if you're willing to deny one area of faithfulness, it won't be long before you start denying other areas. What I've noticed, I've, I've debated with people that are in the more liberal-leaning Christianity, and the issue that we always talk about for a while was the egalitarian issue. You know what that is? That's like there's no headship, like women can lead the family or lead the church kind of thing. Oftentimes I tell them, like, you know, yeah, this is not a salvific issue, but often, if you deny just one area of scripture, what's going to stop you from denying other areas of scripture? If you say no to this, I'm not going to submit this, or this doesn't, it's not relevant to me, then what, what's going to stop you from denying other portions of scripture? Like I said, sin does not isolate itself, and denying of scripture doesn't do that either. It eventually, will, You'll eventually deny other aspects of scripture. Your spiritual life is not compartmentalized. You can't say that you're going to be holy in all of these areas and not be holy in this one area. There is a direct connection between your theology and life and vice versa. You can't say that you're living for God in one area and expect to honor God in other areas. Eventually, you'll try to make room in your life to not obey the Lord. And that will lead to other areas where you will choose not to be faithful in. So that's compromising your testimony, compromising your theology, and lastly, it compromises you spiritually. It compromises your spirituality. Again, Solomon's, his heart was turned away. Again, you know, when I said that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes as a way to, you know, show you that he repented, that's actually just a theory because his name, Solomon, doesn't come up in Hebrews 11. Samson does, all the other judges, horrible judges does, but Samson doesn't. So it's, it's a wonder, did he actually repent? Did he write Ecclesiastes maybe as a false repentance? We don't know. And that's what's scary, right? Because we don't know I don't know if I get to heaven if I ever see Solomon. There's no assurance. We can, we can debate about it. There's no absolute assurance. And that's exactly what happens when you, date, when you see someone date a non-Christian. You're not sure whether or not they're still a believer because they're making all of these compromises. The person dating the non-Christian might think, oh, they totally still are, but objectively, they don't know. That's what's so scary about it. People who fall into compromise for a long time makes this uncertainty that, that their faith was genuine to begin with. 
You can't expect to be holy in the future if you're not holy right now. Apostasy is the greatest danger than anything and than any other reason for you being single. Right? Leaving and denying the faith is way more serious than, oh, I, I can't have a family. Because the loneliness in this life pales in comparison from the separation of the Lord in the next life. You have to understand, oftentimes people that date non-Christians will apostatize because you, the person that you love will have the greatest influence in your life. The person that you love the most is going to have the greatest influence in your life. Your spouse, the person that you choose, is going to spend the most time with you, and inevitably, they will rub off on you. Kelly once told me, hey, well, that, well, I'm not going to say names, but Kelly once told me, hey, do you notice that that couple, elderly couple, they kind of look alike, or they act alike. And now I look at Kelly like, oh, man, that's like an upgrade for me and a downgrade for you because, you know, this, you, I married up like crazy. She kind of married down. But then I noticed that's true. Like your personality, there's a certain way that you talk, and it's just going to rub off on you. The scripture tells us that bad company corrupts good morals, and that's also the other way, too. Good companies encourage good morals. Again, that's just, I mean, you know, when Kelly talked about the physical, yeah, sometimes I notice that people actually kind of look the same. I'm not, again, not listing names. Some may be in this building right now, but, you know, just next time observe elderly people and see, hey, they, they kind of have similar mannerism for sure, and they might even kind of look the same. It's a theory. But if, it's, that's, so if that's true in a physical sense, it will be so, so much more in a spiritual sense. The non-Christian will drag you down. Um, so how do you expect... I mean, how do you expect non-Christians to influence you? I, I mean that they already corrupted you by the fact that you're willing to date them. So what makes you think they're not going to corrupt you in any other area? The problem with sin is that all sin, if, it's continued to, if it continues to grow and fester in your life, will lead to apostasy and a shipwreck of your faith. That compromise will either ruin your faith or wreck your life, and that's usually how it plays out. Dating non-Christians will corrode your spiritual life. The reality of dating non-Christians, which is supposed to lead to marriage, is that you become more like the other person. It's just the reality. Look at certain couples long enough, and you'll see that they're the superficial thing. Yeah, they're going to be similar, but even their, their worldview is going to be similar. The way that the, my wife and I talk is sometimes very similar, and the way that my kids talk is similar to the way that Kelly and I talk. And that's just the reality. You're close to people, and you're influencing them. If you're non-Christian dating, you're, you're non-Christian dating or boyfriend, girlfriend, or non-believing spouse, they're going to influence you in a certain way as well. If you worship God, you'll be more like God. If you worship a non-believer, you'll also become more like that non-believer. What you treasure in, that's what you'll be transformed into. What you esteem, you end up looking like them. I think I shared this once where I was office of Grace Church. This is when I was in college. Um, I felt like going to like the upper echelons of like Christian circles. Like, oh, I'm in these where these elders are. And I remember just meeting one of my friends of an elder there, and he had these interns. And they're all Anglo or they're all white dudes, and I thought they're all related because they all like talk the same way. Like, I thought like, oh, you hired all your brothers to be your intern. That's so weird. Like, I guess that's okay. But they were all not related. It's just that they. They love that one elder, and they just start talking like him. Like, there are certain gestures and certain like language that they would use. Like, hey, that's like, 
You guys, and they, they start dressing like him too. That's where it got really weird. Like they talked and like looked like him. It's like a little kind of like mini cult, but it's like you know, the guy that was like influenced and was like totally oblivious to this. But from outside looking in, it's like okay, these guys like okay, they look like you. They talk like you. And being married is the same way. You end up looking and acting like the person that influenced you the most. His or her character um, may be good, but if they're not a Christian, then they're going to turn you to someone else. This reflects what you desire. If Christ in that other person is not what you desire, then there is something spiritually wrong with you. You know, when you choose a spouse, you have to look at their spiritual maturity. That's what you want like, aside from all the preferences, I, I don't think those things really matter in the long run. But the thing that you want to see is, like, are they being more like Christ in their, in their conduct? Do they have a desire for the Lord? You know, they can call themselves a Christian, but if you look at their life and they, it doesn't seem that way, there's chances are that they probably are either very immature or not a Christian to begin with. Again, this is all to show you that in the Old Testament, at least, that they're there is always this prohibition for people interfaith marriages that are, 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 you can't do that. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, that's why it's in the New Testament, it is not a new concept. It's not a new concept at all. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, this is usually the passage a lot of people go to because it's very clear that, I mean, people usually use this verse to talk about dating and, and marriage. I actually think the context here is just about any type of close relationship that the closest relationship you should have in your life should be believers. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Again, this isn't to say that you guys, that non-believers have like interests that are so foreign to believers that, you know, like if believers like fishing, a non-believer doesn't like fishing. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what this text is saying. It's just saying that the thing that, I, that you identify with most is going to be radically different from what a non-Christian is going to do. It's just different. Why, what do you have in common with this non-Christian? And oftentimes when I ask people this that are dating non-Christians, they'll say things like, oh, we have yeah, like the hobbies, or, or um, that's actually it. It's just the hobbies. Like they can't say, oh, we love the same hymns, or we love the same book in the Bible. Uh, we have the same authors, or, you know, Christian authors that we like. It's always just superficial things, favorite movies, favorite types of, you know, other literature, um, hobbies, or whatever. But it's never something that's super, that's, that's eternal. How can you say your identity in Christ matters most to them and not bother that Christ doesn't matter to you? Like, if, if they don't love Christ, that should bother you. As a Christian, that should bother you. Now, all the verses I've listed are, are implications. They, there's no... Like, hey, you cannot date a non-Christian. But there actually is a verse here. Last week, we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That was the passage where singleness was used to talk a lot about it. And there's also things like marriage and, like, oh, you want to get married. It's a wisdom issue. Remember that? Well, the, I, there's, a, there's a part that I intentionally left out for this message. There's a category of people um, that, that we talked about last week, the widows. Right? The widows are people, they're, they're single people that... They were married. At one point, they lose their spouse. And Paul gives instruction to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 to 40. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she's free to, marry, to be married to whom she wishes. Here's, a, here's that key phrase, only in the Lord. You can only 
marry people that are in the faith. Paul's command to the Corinthians is that, yeah, if you want to remarry, go for it. But the only criteria that he gives is that they have to be in the Lord. He goes through every scenario, and when it comes to remarry, he says that that person that you choose, which is okay, it's totally fine to get remarried if you want, they just have to be in the faith. This verse is saying that she can, that the, that, that the most important thing is not, you know, if you want to remain single, fine. If you want to get married, fine. But the only thing is that they have to be in the Lord. And this isn't in the Lord and saying, like, oh, I do all things for the glory of God. It's not like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, whether eat or drink or marry, do it for the glory of God. It's not, that, that's not what this verse is saying because the whole context here is talking about marriage and singleness. So you can't be like, oh, I'm doing this in the Lord. I'm going to eat and drink and marry non-Christians for the glory of God. That's not, that's like taking verses out of context. What it does mean here is only in the Lord means only believers. And I know some of you guys are probably thinking, well, what about those passages that speak about, you know, winning your spouse to a non, winning your non-believing spouse? And they have that, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12 to 13. But to the rest, I say, not the, not the Lord, meaning he hasn't found us in some writing in Scripture. Um, but if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, her, she must not send her husband away. So some people say, see, see, uh, Paul is saying there are these not, these mixed marriages going on. Verse 14, but for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the, and the, un, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or, or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, in such cases but God has called us to peace. So oftentimes people would use this verse and say, see, it's okay. The Bible is totally fine with me dating and marrying a non-Christian. But this is a context of people that were two non-Christians and one of them gets saved. One of them gets saved and they're wondering, what should I do? Like, this, I know that I wasn't supposed to, I know what the Bible has to say about marriage and, and you know, marrying a non-Christian. But I'm, I've, I was married before I became a Christian. What am I supposed to do? And Paul tells them, if they don't want to leave you, stay with them. Stay with them. This is how you can be a, a positive influence. But that's obedience after the fact that they were, you know, they were a non, they were unsaved, and then they get saved after they're married. When people want to date non-Christians, they're they're choosing to be disobedient in the forefront, hoping that they will eventually be a positive model afterwards. And that's not the case, because even and there's no assurance that the person will be a believer, because even in the text it says like, if they if they consent to live with you, that implies that there's some people. Because of your faith, they're like, that's weird, I'm, gonna, I'm going to leave you. And Paul, and Paul tells them, let them go. If they want to leave you, let them go, because God has called us to peace. God calls them to be obedient to him. And in this context, in terms of marriage, if the, non, if the unbelieving believer doesn't have anything to do with you, and you're a believer, then let them go. So that's the first question is, what about those verses? Which is really just this one verse passage here. Oftentimes, another question that I ask, that that people probably are thinking about is, what if I'm currently dating a non-Christian? And this is hard to do to let go of, but the, really the, that's the answer is to repent, like to, to to break off that relationship. How you go about it, you need to speak the truth in love, but just that, that there's no easy way to get out of a mess, right? It's like you got yourself into this, you have to pull yourself out. There's no quick ex. I mean, there is, the only way to get through this is you have to cut off that relationship. 
that doesn't mean that you can't be nice or friendly to them, but it just means that the relationship has to stop because it will affect your your relationship with the Lord. And if that's the most important relationship, that if that's the one that you cherish the most with the Lord, then you're willing to give things up if it's for the glory of God. Again, I know this can be difficult because of all the time and emotion that's invested in, but in the long run, it'll cost you more if you choose to stay with a non-Christian. And the last question that I think people struggle with, which I made reference to, what if no one wants to go out with me except for non-Christians? In some sense, it could be, I'll I'll go negative. Sometimes the reason why you attract non-Christians is because you act ungodly. Yeah, there are those positives that you're godly and that they're drawn to that, but sometimes the reason why non-Christians are interested in you is because you are like them. You live like them, you talk like them, and really, they don't even notice that you're Christian, so when they ask you out, they're not even thinking whether or not you're a follower of Christ. They're just thinking, oh, you're just like another cute person that I want to date. That could be, that's a negative. The positive is what I just said earlier about, like, maybe because of your godly attitude, your humbleness, your gentleness, your self-sacrificial attitude, that they're drawn to that. But in the end, you can't, you can't choose to be disobedient to the Lord just because it makes you married. And now, again, I understand the pain here. I was single for a long time, too. Um, this is probably the question that's hardest to say and respond to, um, more than even breaking up with your non-Christian you know, significant other. I do think that you need to learn to be content. Again, this is a spiritual matter. It's not whether or not about singleness or marriage. It is a spiritual issue. The solution is not to dishonor the Lord so that you can be satisfied in this life, because you won't. Eventually, the honeymoon period will fade, and if you really love the Lord, you'll find that this relationship is very hollow and empty. To spare you from it, I'm pleading with you. Some of you guys are maybe considering dating a non-Christian or are dating a non-Christian to break off that relationship and be satisfied in the Lord. And pray for this other person, obviously, but that doesn't mean that you need to make compromises. Discontent singles will make discontent spouses, and no marriage will make you happiness, will give you the happiness that you think that, the, that you can be able to get on the other side. Christians dating non-Christians, not just a, it's not a bad idea, it's a terrible idea. It's a violation of scripture, it's ultimately sin. Now I know that some people are listening to this actually are non-Christians, meaning they, they come into the church thinking, well, I'm just, I, I like being in a church because it's a safe environment, the people are nice. Um, I have, generally speaking, the same morals as they do. But you have to understand that you can fake it with a lot of other people, but you cannot fake it with the Lord. The Lord knows whether, why you are here or why you're listening to this message. And you can fool, again, I'm very, I'm, I'm not that, I can be fooled. You know, I've, I've been fooled before and like seeing people that I thought were believers, but that they're really not because their desires were, were you know, ulterior motives. I remember there was a guy when I was at Grace, he, came, he claimed, he was like super fast, uh, infatuated with this one lady in our church and he was like telling me, he basically said everything that a girl at Grace Church would like to hear. Basically, oh, I am, I am pursuing seminary. I love the church. I love Jesus. But this was a guy that got saved like a week before they started dating. Like, what, what do you mean seminary? How do you even, like, the Bible says that non, young Christians should not go into ministry. Why do you want to go into ministry? And it's just the thing to say. 
eventually this guy actually married the girl and not long after that they broke up and it turns out he was a non-believer like and it makes me wonder about the lady were you really that foolish to not see this and yeah again maybe she was deceived because she was not thinking clearly she was in love the way solomon was in love and this is why i think we need to have an objective standard of what the bible has to say so that we won't be emotions are hard to like overcome but if you have those guardrails in your life you'll know to make to, 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 go, to keep yourself from those things regardless of how you feel. Again, there are non-Christians that come into the church disguising a Christian, try to find a spouse. Again, you can fool everyone, but at the end, you can't fool the Lord. And for you, I, I, I would say repent. Turn from, your, turn from your own desires to try to pursue someone in the church, but rather pursue a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Because without him, you're dead in your sins and your trespasses, and you are headed to the worst you're headed to destruction, and that is God pouring out his wrath on you for all the hypocrisy, all the lies, and all the deceitfulness that you have tried kept in this life. The Lord knows your heart, and that is you today. You need to turn from that and place your faith in Jesus Christ. For the rest of you, I hope that if you understand that this is what the scripture has to say, this is not my own opinion, this is God's word, I try to give as many passages as possible so that you know that this is what God's word has to say so you know how to navigate if someone comes up to you and say, hey, you, can I go out with you? You know that they're not a believer. And you have the right to sermon to say, no, thank you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm thankful for your word, and I pray that all of us would heed your warning from your word, that clinging to relationships with people outside the church will slowly turn our hearts away from you. Lord, give us the wisdom and discernment to see that. Lord, allow us to love you more, to cherish you more than any, any, anything that anyone in this life can provide. But we know, I know that there are some people here that are struggling with singleness. Lord, may you intervene and work in their life, make them joyful and thankful that they ultimately have you, and primarily that they have you. Lord, I hope that for those that are struggling with singing, that you give them comfort and be with them in a, in a very unique way so that they can be, they can live um, their singleness now joyfully. And Lord, if there are those that are pursuing or thinking about pursuing non-Christians, may you convict them and let them know what they must do so that they can continue to live in a way that is truly pleasing to you. Give us all objectivity that's based and grounded on your word. May we live in such a way that is holy because you, God, are holy. We love you, Lord, and we want to live in such a way that's honoring to you. And may your name be known to the ends of the earth. Thank you for the time that we have. In your son's precious name, amen.